So um, I think to begin with, I would like to chant the refuges um, as are done in the Vipassana tradition. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambhurasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambhurasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato Sama Sambhurasa Udam Saranangachami Dhamam Saranangachami Sangam Saranangachami Dutiyampi Budam Saranangachami Dutiyampi Dhamam Saranangachami Dutiyampi Sangam Saranangachami Tatiyampi Budam Saranangachami Tatiyampi Dhamam Saranangachami Tatiyampi Sangam Saranangachami. And I would like to include um, in the Tibetan tradition, we use um, what's called bodhicitta or um, the inclination of an altruistic heart that we practice for the benefit of all beings, and not only beings, but the whole of the phenomenal world, including the land and the other living beings. Um, so from one of the um, uh, lineage masters, um, I have modified, instead of using the word enlightenment, and, and using understanding. And so, for the sake of everything that is arising, may I reach complete understanding. For the sake of everything that is arising, may I reach complete understanding. For the sake of everything that is arising, may I reach complete understanding. And so with uh, bodhicitta, bodhicitta, we can cultivate it just like that, you know, using phrases. But bodhicitta also just arises spontaneously as part of our practice, as part of the, the purity of our essence uh, shining through. And this inclination to want to practice for the benefit of everything it's the ultimate protection. There's a certain, um, as Joseph has been speaking about energies, there's just a, a gathering of a power. And um, in Gandhi's uh, nonviolent uh, tradition, 
He used to talk about the, the power of the truth, that the truth itself has a power. And so um, how we incline our hearts, the intention has tremendous power. So um, it's something you can add to your practice if, if it feels useful. So this morning, um, I'm going to explore a bit about upekha or equanimity. And, you know, during our week, we began with Pawan um, just sharing and, and um, guiding us through the cultivation of loving kindness, which is very similar to the bodhicitta. Um, that same impartiality of well-wishing. And um, as that inclination, you know, establishes itself, then, you know, compassion is that much more available. And Noli, Noli Wei, um, guide us through that whole exploration of compassion and the, how we learn to care, how we learn to care for ourselves and for our world. And then Josen um, explored mudita, our capacity to actually be happy for the happiness of others. And that also, as you, as I feel into these Brahma Viharas, one thing that becomes very obvious is the the, uh, the liberating effect they have. That so much, you know, of our experience can be sort of tied up in one way or another. And as the heart uh, is um, starts to be able to exhibit these beautiful qualities, which are part of our essence, there's just this. It's almost like the dams in the river get lifted out, and then. There's just this flow of ultimately uh, love and our capacity to see and know. Um, so then these three uh, first Brahma Viharas, you know, we, we sort of incline ourselves and we cultivate. And so um, Upeka... Uh, Equanimity is a little bit different in that in some ways, equanimity is like the result of practice. It's like the fruit of development because equanimity is, is based on a sort of a broad, a greater understanding. You know, we all live with our own limited understanding of things. But as our practice go, uh, grows and the view gets larger and larger and deeper, so we're able to understand more. So through that understanding, then there's a perspective that emerges that's different from the ordinary perspective where we're just caught in, I like this, I don't like that, and that doesn't interest me, sort of. Um, movements, you know, around those very simple feelings. So equanimity starts bringing in a uh, uh, much greater capacity to be with life and uh, 
not only external events, but also to be with our own experience. So um, with that kind of opening of the view and increasing capacity, there's a possibility for greater peace. And a peace that's not just completely dependent on what's happening on the outside, but it's a, a, a peace that starts um, establishing itself from within. Um, so if one were to define it, you know, in, 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 through our practice, it's the capacity to remain steady in the face of experience. And this remaining steady, what is that about? You know, depending, I was thinking on the culture I come from, you know, that there's, you know, there's so much, um, you know, value um, attached to being able to express oneself and being passionate and engaged and all of that. And sometimes, you know, depending on, our, our cultural um, milieu that we grow, grow up in, equanimity is not something that people are, are rushing to develop. It's, it's kind of, it can seem kind of boring, you know, like, or like you don't care or, you know, um, and, and, you know, I think that those concerns are based upon the lack of understanding and sometimes maybe seeing equanimity as uh, the near enemy of, I mean, the, the far enemy of it, which can be indifference. So getting confused about that, that if somehow equanimity and indifference are, are the same, which they're not. And the, um, uh, the far enemy of, of equanimity is uh, reactivity. And <laughs> I sure know that one very well. I'm sure most of us do, you know, that... Um, part of my sort of fiery personality from the get-go is just a very quick, you know, reaction to things and passionate about this or that, you know, and somehow spending a lot of my younger years very attached to that way of being and thinking and being confused about thinking that that's what meant to be alive or to be engaged, you know. Um, so the, there was a very tight grip <clears throat> on my opinions and my ideas and um, sometimes not a whole lot of room for other people's feelings or ideas, you know. So when we're like that, you know, sort of like this moving, um, I don't know, moving truck, you know, there's <laughs> kind of trample over uh, other, other, other people's um, sens sensitivities. Or we could be falling into an opposite um, place where we um, have a hard time connecting to ourselves and uh, don't know where we stand and hard to take a position and feeling confused or not clear about what it is that we actually feel. And so that's another uh, way in which we're, we're, um, we're limited. So one of the... Um, one of the values of equanimity is that it allows the heart to deeply hold the joys and the sorrows without being overwhelmed. 
and then to remain more intimate with our own experience. We long for and need that intimacy with our own experience. When we don't have that intimacy, we struggle in knowing how to be, how to respond, how to connect. So, um, So as we are able to meet our own experience, there's more freedom around what are called the eight worldly dharmas. Praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure, pain, fame and insignificance or ill repute. And as you can see, these are opposites. And... um, Some of us, you know, if we really kind of turn towards ourselves and and, and inquire, we find that for some of us, some of of these pairs have more charge than others. And for me, um, the whole thing about praise and blame uh, was very charged through my childhood. I, uh, I had a very difficult time in elementary school and was a kid that um, a lot of kids hated and um, received a lot of um, um, violence and, and, and rejection. And um, this went on for a very, very long time. And they used to steal my, uh, my lunch from under my seat. And so this went on and on for years. And it's interesting, as children, we don't often... I think I might have mentioned it to my parents, but really nothing was done. And so um, I would fight, fight, fight. You know, I think that that's where the fighting, uh, you know, approach um, developed. But finally, it stopped when I made the sandwich that had all kinds of chili peppers mixed in with soap and all kinds of things. And I put it in this beautiful, you know, Loaf, a little loaf that we they used to have. This is in the northern coast of the Dominican Republic. And I put it under my seat, you know, and after, a little while after, I hear a scream down the hall. Somebody had taken it. And they were so good at doing this that I, I didn't even notice when they take it. But I, the scream, and then they rush into the classroom trying to get after me. And then at that point, the teacher um, didn't allow them. But that stopped. It stopped all the abuse, you know. But the, um, the imprint, I mean, we all have our, our own stories, you know, like what's happened to us that makes an imprint. And then we are poised to, um, to interpret things in a particular way. So for me, as I move through life, you know, many times I would imagine rejection when it was there. I could sometimes, and sometimes it wasn't, but I would just, if it smelled like it, I, I was sure, you know, I was being rejected. So, so then, you know, we all have vulnerabilities like that. And so for me, one of the things, the freedoms that came as my practice developed was to sometimes be able to weather the fact that, you know, we can't please everyone. And sometimes people will, will project things to, 
you know, towards us, or we'll think we're doing something, or there's no way to make ourselves understood, even if you try, and then to be able to weather the anxiety that comes up with other, with other people's displeasure or not being understood, and to actually, once you've done what you could to make yourself understood, and still you're not, to just be able to accept and to realize that not everyone is going to understand us. Not everyone is going to get us. You know, and we, we human beings pretty much live inside our own projection. Our view is quite limited. We see through this veil of our past experience and interpret through that veil. So, but for me to learn, you know, that the world wasn't going to end if somebody thought, you know, badly of me or judged me or something, to actually f- know that I could survive that, then, you know, it made my world bigger. It gave me um, more freedom. It gave me more capacity to be and to not betray what I knew to be the truth in order to avoid rejection. Because that's what happens, you know, uh, if we don't have that kind of freedom and we are afraid, then we're not able to honor what's actually true for us. The other aspect of equanimity that is also very powerful is that it gives us more capacity to deal. And I remember the story, I, I use it a lot because I, I, it was so telling, you know, it just, it taught me so much, but, you know, I, I'm trained as a physician and um, I went to medical school kind of later in life and um, I trained at, <clears throat> at San Francisco General Hospital and the emergency room there, it's really, if you're, if you're in charge of that, it's very scary. And so as a resident, I was there and, um, you know, I had to rotate three different, three different times, you know, through there, through the three years of residency. And the first time, you know, I just felt like I was flying by the seat of my pants. I mean, just <laughs> kind of petrified in a way. And, uh, and, there was so much going on, ambulances coming in, people needing this and that. And, you know, the nurses would be angry at me because I'm not moving fast enough. And it was just like mission impossible. And um, so I was already meditating. So I decided to let go of some more sleep and just meditate more. So I did before the second time around because during the first time, I didn't even have time. Sometimes in a 12-hour shift, I couldn't even go to the bathroom. It was just one thing after another. So the second time, I decided to, to uh, meditate more. And it was amazing. Out of nowhere, all of a sudden, I had time. I had time to even joke with the nurses. And, and, but what was most remarkable and was the biggest teaching is that my mind could focus so much better. There were a couple of situations where I got a call from the ambulance that were bringing somebody with this and that and, you know, telling me the details. And they were unusual things. And in my mind, immediately, 
what came is like, oh, this is probably an interaction of these two medications. And I mean, just like, it just, um, by the time the person arrived, you know, and it was a very, it's a kind of thing where we, I had to make a decision within half an hour, this, this person would have died. And it all, all the information, everything I had learned, even if I had never seen it before, it was just from books, you know, just what I had been taught. It all came in. And I was able to be very precise and know exactly what to do. And there was another situation where a similar thing happened. And so I, I tell the story, you know, as a tribute to the practice. Because when our no, or normal, you know, ordinary way of being, you know, we're, we're scattered. And uh, because of the, you know, traumas of our trajectory, we're fragmented. Trauma fragments us. And as the practice develops, it's like we're collecting all these pieces of ourselves into a whole. And when that's put together, the capacity is tremendous. And there's not so much static. And so what's appropriate for the circumstance comes in. The, the, um, the incredible capacity, our essence, has all these qualities, which include you know, the quality of Manjusri, which is the Bodhisattva wisdom, but it's that sword that clearly sees, is, is part of the innate intelligence of our essence. And that innate intelligence can see circumstances. And then from all that you have learned gets matched to the circumstance. And it, 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 it guides you as to how, what to do about it, how to meet it, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. So you, you see wisdom arising, just welling up. And the wisdom that arises within each of us is very specific. It's specific to who we are, what context we live in, to the circumstances that we're facing. It's a natural response that's arising from the ground of our being, not from our personality and all the stories we're identified with. This is much deeper. And this is a result of the practice. I mean, it's always there. It's just that we, to uncover it, we have to practice. We cannot access this stuff without practice. It's very, very difficult. Um, so anyway, I, um, I wanted to, uh, about that, that story, there are a couple of things when I was thinking about doing this talk, and, and believe me, it was until the last minute, there was so much stuff going on with my family, I could not focus. And I thought, of all themes, equanimity, I needed it so badly. But um, I, I thought, who, you know, who could I use some, um, some support from? And um, Howard, uh, the Reverend Howard Thurman, who's... Uh, you know, theology of, of nonviolence was so powerful. And there's such kindness in his um, approach. So I, I found, I'm, I'm just going to share just a few of his quotes with you. The first one, it says, to be free means the ability to deal with the realities of one's 
situation so as not to be overcome by them. And the other, in the stillness of the quiet, if we listen, we can hear the whisper of the heart giving strength to weakness, courage to fear, hope to despair. So when we um, when we don't have access <clears throat> to equanimity and we're in a reactive state, the reactive state has certain characteristics. First of all, it's like we're being propelled, you know, just something's pushing us. We don't have much choice, you know, in how we respond. We, the, the view gets very narrow. And because it gets very narrow, we really can't take in the broader landscape of what's going on. We kind of get tunnel vision. And often, you know, we, we respond and then later we may regret what, we, what we've done, you know. And, um, and I find this to be, you know, very common dealing with family because, <clears throat> you know, with family, we're, we're, we're in the matrix of our whole history and all the reactions and, you know, everybody involved, you know, the, those, those um, patterns sometimes feel like they're very hardwired, you know, hard to change. So, <clears throat> you know, when, we, when we're reactive in that way, then often we have to later apologize and try and, and backpedal, you know, what we have just done. So this, this sort of, and I, I, and I really have experienced this almost like everything gets, you know, I, I go in, into the tunnel and uh, there are particular things that are really triggering, you know, anything that feels unjust, you know, from my, from my early, early years, it just like I go into the tunnel. <clears throat> and so, you know, what makes us reactive you know, has to do with our identity, our sense of who we are, our history, and all that, our values, what we, what we, um, what we value, and also our, even at a lighter level, um, our preferences, what we like, what we don't like. It's it's uh, useful to remember. You know, we all have an ego structure. <coughs> um, and it's useful to understand what the ego is about, you know, and I, I think I mentioned it before um, in the other talk that, you know, our ego, which is just a, like a structure in our mind that allows us to function within the world of convention. And, you know, it's a, it's a collection of past experience. But when, because it's just a collection of past experience, it's not something that is really grounded and solid like our essence you know it has so much capacity the ego you know deals makes like arbitrary deals with certainties you know and the world life is not certain you know we know from impermanence you know things come they go and they're around and then they go and yet the ego kind of has a fantasy that, you know, that we can hold on and keep something to be the same 
through time, you know, our ideas. And so <clears throat> it's like we make up arbitrary certainties. And it's almost like, you know, <laughs> like a monkey that's going from one branch to another. It's like we hang on to one certainty and another certainty, even if they're arbitrary. <clears throat> and then when we run into something that doesn't validate our view, whew, you know, our ego doesn't like that. It gets nervous. And, um, and pretty soon, this is all happening in the unconscious. Pretty soon, something that doesn't match our, our view, we make it wrong, and pretty soon we dismiss it. And if we're dealing with another person that's very different from us and doesn't validate our view, then, you know, in a millisecond, we can dismiss that person and just write them off. And so <clears throat> to be able to not just be run by that, that's where the practice comes in to give us choice. And then with the practice, it's like we see our ego, we see all the, all the machinations of it, but we have some perspective on it. We can actually know ourselves and know how our, our ego is put together and the vulnerabilities it has because of our history. And then be able to, in some way, mitigate those vulnerabilities with wisdom. So that when we do that, it's not like we betray our vulnerability. It's that we have a choice. You know, when we're propelled with reactivity, we have no choice. We're just being catapulted into some kind of response. And when um, equanimity starts arising within our own capacity, all of a sudden we have a choice. Even if we want to go out there and like scream and do whatever, we can choose, yes, yes, I want to scream, or I want to cry, or I want to do this, or, you know, some of the more difficult uh, with anger and hatred, and, you know, those arise within us. But as they arise, we can, we can be and hold them and be intimate with our own experience within, without being catapulted into unskillful action that's going to create more suffering and more hatred and more negative karma ultimately that you know almost always backfires so this this element of choice being able to choose being able to choose how we respond respond doesn't mean that we ignore how we feel it's the capacity to have both to honor how you feel and choose how we respond in terms of the external world. So it's this um, being able to do right by the inner and outer experience and to increase. I mean, this is, you know, in terms of um, the power of awareness, the power of insight the power of understanding, the power of the truth. There's a seamlessness and an inherent um, quality of wisdom when we have access to equanimity. Then it allows for clear seeing. And we can see, like all the pieces, like we can see if we took this route, where's it going to lead versus this other route
when we are caught in indifference, going back to our ego structure, you know, we often go into indifference when something, you know, is just not interesting, not, not, not part of like what we value or something's boring, not relevant, you know. We can do that with each other sometimes, you know, same way. We can, um, we can dismiss each other either because, you know, we get reactive and we don't like it or because we don't care, you know. And so it's the same, it's, it's the same um, inability to open our hearts because our ego is, is rolling along with its preferences and it's, it's, it's at the driver's seat. And that, you know, that kind of indifference can happen. I, I notice, you know, we, we live in a, um, such a, an, what they call anthropocentric view, you know, that we're only um, aware of like the human priorities in most um, Western cultures, the indigenous cultures and um these days, primarily within, it's being held within indigenous culture, the understanding of our seamless, the seamlessness of our interbeing with other beings that are not part of the human race. And not only like living beings, but the seamlessness of our connection with this whole biosphere and all that is present and all that we depend on for our life, including the minerals and the rocks and the waters and the air and the fire and the space. So our, sometimes our indifference gets extended to the natural world. And some of us, you know, that have grown in urban settings, you know, we haven't had a lot of access to nature. And there can be this feeling of sort of just estrangement from it. And so noticing that and finding ways to regain that connection, which is so needed for our souls. So in terms of our practice, you know, as we go along, we develop more sensitivity and more vulnerability. You know, um, the teacher Trumpa, um, Choyen Trumpa, Tibetan teacher that came to the U.S., he said, you know, the practice is one humiliation after another. <laughs> it's just, as we see ourselves, it's like we, <laughs> what we see sometimes is, is not easy to be with. 
but there's a, a growing tenderness in the heart that helps us be with the humiliation. And in fact, that what I find over time is that, you know, not always, but sometimes when I see something like really not so great that I'm doing, there's a paradox because some kind of joy comes up and the joy of seeing it because then I have choice. Whereas if I didn't see it, I had no choice. And there I'm, you know, walking out doing something and other people can see it, but I couldn't see it. So when I see it, it now, sometimes there's a feeling of joy, you know, and I can apologize or I can, and there is, it's not so charged anymore. You know, it's like, it's not like life and death of my ego on the line, you know, there's, there's a little bit more wiggle room. And so um, there's a joy, it's paradoxical, there's a joy in being able to really know ourselves. It's like this longing to understand ourselves. It goes all the way to not only understand our psychology and like how we got to where we are, which then allows us to really care. And then compassion is that much more available. Equanimity and compassion are very linked. And then, you know, as, as we care and feel that compassion, then the joy arises. And then as we feel that compassion for ourselves, then the, the, we can more easily wish well for others so that others have, um, that we can love, we can, we can have goodwill and we can wish well um, and wish happiness for others. So you can see as equanimity, which is like a result of practice, but it's like from, from the platform of equanimity, then the, we go, the other Brahma Viharas get even more um, free, freed up, you know, and more boundless. And that's why, you know, they, they, they refer to the Brahma Viharas as the boundless qualities. Because, you know, we start cultivating them deliberately, like we do with these practices. What happens over time is that they just, they're spontaneously present in our essence. They blossom out without us having to work so hard anymore. They just, as the depth of the practice reveals itself, the, these qualities just blossom. There's an, an alchemical process that goes on and it comes from our connecting, you know, before I was talking about these inner refuges of the silence, the stillness, and then the space, spaciousness. And that spaciousness is a big doorway. It's because it's connected to the unbounded, the unbounded, um, unbounded nature of what our essence actually is. And um, I think it's tomorrow, yeah, that I'll be um, leading the meditation where I'm hoping to share a little bit about how we access that.
But as we um, begin to more consciously recognize it, because it arises within our experience all the time, we just don't recognize it. We don't see it because most of the time we need help in identifying it because the world we live in does not see it, does not value it. And in fact, our attention is always being taken away from it. But as that, as we start to recognize it and feel or feel that, it's, it's an alchemical process that you know, make, makes, makes the awareness stronger and the perspective broader. And there's just the wisdom, it's just the wisdom arises without us having to work on it. It, it, it happens as an alchemy and our capacity to be with and the equanimity and the love and all the beautiful qualities just flow out of that. And, you know, with, with what we are facing these days, with all the violence being so obvious and such a long history, there's like this worn out feeling and the grief of the having it be so much on our faces because of the way we are connected now through technology, you know, and the addition of the pandemic so that this incredible vulnerability in which all of this hatred and violence is landing and the feeling of overwhelm. This is our, our refuge, the, the um, equanimity. It's the um, having the capacity to, you know, grieve and, and cry and, and uh, be with our hearts and then still be able to see how it is. So, and have the wisdom, because with, with this, especially now because of the technology, we're, we, we are bombarded with images. And so to have the wisdom, how much of this imagery do we allow to come in? A lot of the stuff we already know. So the wisdom to modulate sort of the diet that we are allowing ourselves to be exposed to and yet be able to attend to our own experience to be able to hold ourselves and just even right now as i say these words to feel the support of this field that we've created together, this precious field of our Sangha. Our own individual capacities as they develop, when we come together as a conscious Sangha community of human beings with a certain depth of experience and understanding, there's a power in this field that holds us. 
And the, that support allows us to have more tenderness towards our own experience, towards our own predicament. So we have our individual development, but the Sangha is indispensable in these times. And remembering when I was talking about the refuges, that the Sangha over time and through the depth of our development becomes the direct knowing of oneness. There's a seamless continuity throughout all of life. We are part of that fabric of life. Nobody is separate. Reverend Thurman, there is a quiet courage that comes from an inward spring of confidence in the meaning and significance of life. Such courage is an underground river flowing far beneath the shifting events of one's experience, keeping alive a thousand little springs of action. The spaciousness of our heart-mind, as we connect to that, then to open and be present to what is here right now in this moment. And as we connect to what is here now, to hold it with the tenderness <clears throat> of like a mother holding her precious child. And as we hold what is present for us in this moment with this attitude, then see how it transforms. And I'll ring the bell a little bit before um, we end. But just to take this time to be, to be with yourself, to be with what is here. You may even have your hands over your heart or your belly if you find it useful. And feel your connection with the ground from your seat, your sit bones, your legs. Feel yourself held by the earth. as you open your heart to what is present.
See if you can allow the normal flow of what is arising without grabbing onto it, pushing it away. Just allow it to come in its natural pace and unfold as it is natural for it.
before we end, I'd like to um, to chant a chant in Tibetan that's for the removal of obstacles. And um, I wanted to remind everyone we're coming right up to the full moon uh, tomorrow, Saturday. To, to, yeah, tomorrow, Saturday. And so right after me, I think it's like after midnight, 1240 something, you know, our time, Western time. Um, in the Tibetan tradition, and, and there's going to also be an eclipse, you know, at some point. Um, you know, Carol might know more about that. Um, but these are very powerful times. And in the Tibetan tradition, on the full moons, right up, you know, to the point when it becomes full, people do a lot of practice because it's believed that that energy uh, makes it so that whatever actions we take, their effect is greatly um, um, enhanced. Or, or So we want to um, take beneficial action and avoid uh, harming during this time. So uh, if you have things that you need, um, pray, specific prayers for people, um, for yourself, uh, it's a beautiful time uh, up to the full moon and around the full moon to do prayers and practices. So I'll, I'm just going to end with the uh, with this chant for all of us. Do sum sangye guru rinpo che
May all beings be free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.